Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Muskoka Drawdown. Welcome to Muskoka Drawdowns. I'm your host, Frank DeYoung. I'm here on behalf of CAM, Climate Action Muskoka. Check out the CAM website and sign up for our free, free weekly newsletter for views, news and reviews. My guest today is Phil Pothen. He is an environmental lawyer with environmental defense. He has a background in landscape ecology, landscape architecture, and he focuses on Ontario issues. Welcome to Muskoka Drawdown, Phil. Hey, thanks for having me, Frank. All right. First of all, uh, you're, a, you're a lawyer and everyone hates lawyers, but you're an environmental lawyer and everyone loves environmental lawyers. So are you just reaching out for love? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tell me, tell me briefly, what is an, what is an environmental lawyer? Well, uh, essentially, we're lawyers who... Um, a, help people follow environmental laws. So, you know, there are lawyers, you know, environmental lawyers on all sides. Uh, even the, the big companies have them. And, and, and then on, on our side, we're the folks who try to make sure that uh, we use environmental laws effectively to protect wetlands, to protect wildlife habitat, to reduce carbon emissions. And here at Environmental Defense, I don't just get to enforce the laws that are on the books by trying to get them prosecuted or using, uh, you know, private litigation or OMB, or now it's OLT hearings, uh, we actually get to design proposals for new laws that we think are necessary to uh, meet our emissions targets and save wildlife and habitat. That's, that's actually amazing. Um, and you're with Environmental Defense, which used to be called the Environmental Law Association. Is that correct? No. So those are different organizations. There oh. are, there's Ecojustice, there's the Canadian okay. Environmental Law Association, there's Environmental Defense. Environmental Defense is a sort of a, uh, a mixed think tank charity. So I'm actually the only environmental lawyer here. We have experts on climate finance. We have, you know, your environmental scientists, you have, mm. um, experts on just organizing. Um, and so we kind of put all of those pieces of expertise together to come up with sound policy proposals that aren't tainted with, with, with the interests of someone with something to sell or, or someone with land to develop. And we pitch those to governments. And so you, you know, in the past, we've been successful. Yeah. So you just sort of, you sort of offer your services to governments or, or you lobby, I guess it would be called. Yeah. And to do you sit down and talk with developers, with the Degasperus folks of Ontario and all that? You know, listen, we'd be happy to talk to them if, if they would talk to us. But right. uh, unfortunately, their interests, having land banked uh, much of Ontario's best farmland, uh, much of it in the Greenbelt, are really diametrically opposed to ours. Yeah. Uh, you know, we are what stands between. Uh, you know, those land bankers mm-hmm. and literally multiple billions of dollars. So, so you I, said, I'm not so sure they'll be interested in what we have to say. You said you're an environmental lawyer. And so I guess the developers have anti-environmental lawyers on staff. Well, I think they're called environmental lawyers, too. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, uh, 
it, it's a bit like medieval jousting. They're all knights, whether, whether black knight or white knight. They're both on. The, they're both knights. Right. Um, uh, Mike Schreiner, the Green Party leader, is recently quoted as saying the premier and the minister are basically bringing a sledgehammer to environmental protections and responsible planning in the pro- in this province. Is Mike being uh, like over the top? Is he justified in saying that? Uh, not at all. Uh, it, it's quite interesting. The first term of the provincial government was marked by their trying this kind of approach early on them getting rebuked for it, and they switched to uh, a covert kind of method, which we called the big sprawl, in order to draw people's attention to it. But basically, it was a series of behind-the-scenes tweaks to legislation, behind-the-scenes arm-twisting of politicians, which were designed to get municipalities to do the government's dirty work and have the government not look like it was going to do it. And so what we did at Environmental Defense is show folks how to avoid doing the government's dirty work while still technically complying with the law. And the product of that was, you know, these wins in Hamilton and Halton, Waterloo, where they didn't extend settlement area boundaries, where they protected the environment and they still accommodated all the people who want to live there. So, but what happened, they kept up that approach. They kept repeating like a sort of mantra up until this election. We will never touch the green belt. We will protect the green yeah. belt forever. But what's happened is now that the provincial election is over and they waited until the municipal elections were over. And then literally the day afterwards, the mask came off. Yeah. And now it is a full fledged open attack on environmental protections. And, you know, frankly, just naked uh, servitude to right. uh, particular landowners who want their, yeah. uh, you know, land turns into billions of dollars, uh, whatever the cost. Okay, I, I want to back up a little bit. There are 100,000 new immigrants moving to Toronto every year. So is the Doug Ford government just doing something that the Liberals, NDP, or Greens would eventually have to do anyway? Is it ideological or is it just being practical? Well, it, I mean, it's not at all something that would be necessary. We have to remember that we desperately need a lot of new population in existing neighborhoods in Toronto, in really every Ontario community in order to fix the mistakes that we made after the 1950s. So I'm not even talking about the broader economic need, but we built them at densities that were far too low to be sustainable from the start. In order to be sustainable, if you look at a map, communities with a dense mix of uh, homes, workplaces, at least 100 people per hectare, uh, reliable transit grids, those communities have a tiny fraction of the carbon emissions that you get from someone living at low densities in a place where they need to drive every day. So other, we build other, lots and lots of communities like that. We need to retrofit them yeah. by adding more people into the kind of place where you don't need a car anymore, and we need those people to do that. Instead, yeah, this I, government is missing that opportunity and squandering all of the population that we need to fix our existing neighborhoods on more of the same mistake. More of the most carbon intensive, environmentally damaging forms of development and leaving the stuff that we have there unfixed. So we're missing no. our chance, actually. The real problem so you is think, that we're missing our chance. Are you, you're saying that there's lots of room within the existing urban boundaries to accommodate 100,000 new people in Toronto every year? Oh, ab- absolutely. Like more than that, you know, we, we have said, you know, let's forget. So Toronto is the city, the t- Toronto itself 
should be aiming to accommodate twice the number of people that the Ford government itself originally assigned to. It's a funny thing. The Ford government has only assigned 700,000 new people to Toronto over the next 30 years, the city of Toronto. Toronto should at least be planning for 1.4 million, and they can easily plan for a lot more. And that would only just then begin to get us to the point where we had fixed our existing post-World War II neighborhoods yeah. and brought them up to... A lot, of, a lot of people still like living in car-dependent sprawl. They think it's great there. They feel safe. They, they have their own car. And it's the dream, the American dream. Uh, I know when you drive, when you drive, drive north of Toronto, you see the density is a lot greater, but it's still not what you're looking at, I suppose, right? The other issue is that uh, the sprawl has been leapfrogging the green belt. Uh, that also, in your opinion, by what you're saying, sounds like it's un- unnecessary and um, oh, really? ecologically so. destructive. So, I mean, it's very interesting. We've done a lot of work on finding out you know, whether this is really true. What do, do people who live in the suburbs, did they move there because that's the lifestyle they want? Because they want to have to drive anywhere? And we did an extensive survey, independently conducted by one of the big, uh, you know, expert pollsters. And what they found was that even in those suburban, low-density, car-dependent neighborhoods where the majority of the people say they could never get by without a car, two-thirds of people say they would much prefer to be living in the kind of neighborhood where they didn't ever need a car to get to work, to school, pick up their groceries. And the problem that we have is that they can't afford homes in those places because there aren't enough of them, right? So basically we've been building a whole bunch of sprawl homes and nowhere near enough, like especially family homes, like like a thousand square foot plus homes within existing built up areas. So of course they, they end up living there just by, not by necessity, because that's all there is, not by choice. So, so what your your criticism of the 403 highway and that all the developers already land banked the land for 20, 30 years, and as soon as it gets rezoned to uh, to a car dependent sprawl, they you know they earn five, ten times uh, the money. It's an incredible cash cow that they are holding on to. But that has been going on, Phil, as you know, for fifty years. Ever you know since since since, since uh, Toronto started growing uh, sort of fast, and and all the suburbs are the same. And the part of the problem I always think is that uh, it's uh, we are um, uh, we think that suburban land is cheap and urban land is expensive but if we use something called land value taxation i don't know if you're familiar with that term i've heard i hear a lot munis- about it all the time <laughs> yeah the, the municipal taxes should be just on the land and not on the buildings so we shouldn't be punishing people for building more housing on less land that would be a, a an elegant market mechanism to achieve what you're talking about yet well, we I mean, do the land, opposite land value taxation i think you know it I haven't formed an opinion about it. it it's a bit of a, uh, you know, it, it's a, it takes a lot of explaining. And what we can talk about is the kind of built form that is good, right? What's yeah. the form? We, we can build a consensus upon what our cities should look like and what they can look like if we want everyone to be able to have a dignified home where it's safe to get around and if we want to still be able to feed ourselves and meet our climate obligations. And that kind of community is a community of at least 100 people per hectare. It's a community where most people don't need a private car to get around. It's a community with good public parks and infrastructure. And, you know, frankly, that kind of community already exists. If you want to look 
at the examples. They're they're there ready to find. They're well, welcome Phil, to the building we off of Cold War II in Riverdale. If you look at the Riverdale neighborhood, it is greener, better treated, <laughs> you know, more walkable than any neighborhood you'll see in in, in like Raven but, Road, North York. Phil, we fly right to, and then we started getting it wrong. We fly to Europe to walk around in pedestrian communities. We yeah. go to third world countries where they have fabulous plazas. We love walking around in third world countries. But we build the complete opposite here. We build car hell here. Um, I'm afraid we have to take a little break here and we'll be right back after the break. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Muskoka Drawdown. Welcome back to Muskoka Drawdown. My guest today is Phil Pothen, who works for Environmental Defense, and he is focusing on Ontario issues, certainly land use. Uh, Phil, we've talked a lot about the Green Belt and the uh, Highway 403 and, and the developers, but how are green belts in, like, say, Ottawa or Washington and Berlin and other cities doing these days? Are they under attack as well? Well, it, it's important to draw a, a sharp distinction between uh, the green belt in Ottawa in particular and the green belt in Toronto, because the green belt in Toronto was conceptually quite different from the green belt in Ottawa. Green belt in Ottawa was very much based on something called a garden city concept. It wasn't really understood that all of Ottawa would be contained within the Greenbelt and development wouldn't expand without it. And indeed, we've seen a pattern where almost by, by design, development leapfrogged it. And you saw the development of communities outside of Ottawa yep. that had been quite card pending. The Toronto Greenbelt or the Greater Golden Horseshoe Greenbelt is quite a different thing because it is supposed to and it ought to be managed and expanded and controlled with a view to suppressing leapfrog growth outside of it, which means if there's a location outside the green belt where growth might leapfrog, where you might have people living outside the green belt and commuting inside, then really that means that's a piece of land that should be added to the green belt because there shouldn't be anyone living outside the green belt and commuting, commuting to inside. The idea is everyone who commutes to Toronto should be living inside the green belt, period. Yeah. And with like within the boundary, it, what it is supposed to be is a shield for the most threatened, most development-sensitive parts of the much larger area of land that has to be kept off limits for development. So, if if the green if the green belt is not this sort of a, you know, I, I I've described it as a, it's not a barrel of rice, you know, where you scoop out, you know, three or four scoops, and as long as you put in more rice, you're okay. If that's what it was, like it's not our it's not our stockpile of all the land we need. If that's what it were, was pretty much, you know, not like the vast majority of the land south of a line between Ottawa and Muskoka would have to be in the green belt uh, because that, you know, we need that most of that land in order to feed ourselves. Uh, not much of Canada is arable land. Not much of Ontario is arable land. So we got to keep the land that we have. What the green belt is, is just this. It's the shield that protects that against uh, sprawl. And so uh, it's conceptually different. And so I, I don't know that actually it was it was light years ahead of, you know, green belt models that we've seen elsewhere, which had a different conceptual foundation. So I wouldn't necessarily draw a comparison. Yeah. We also have uh, Bill 23 coming up 
No, that's still 23. It also talks about conservation authorities. That's outside the Greenbelt, is it not? Is that uh, all of Well, it's both Ontario? outside and inside the Greenbelt. And mm-hmm. let me tell you what they are proposing, uh, both with Bill 23 and an associated regulatory change, mm-hmm. is potentially the, the biggest biodiversity loss that certainly someone my age has seen in their lifetimes in Ontario in one fell swoop. Because what they're talking about, it's not streamlining as they claim. It's not shifting around who's responsible for protecting wetlands. It is stripping away protection from many wetlands, many natural heritage areas, many forests that are currently off limits to development and creating conditions so that they can be paved and destroyed as of right. And no one is able to stand in the way. Because the municipal governments rely on conservation authorities to refuse permits for development that's going to cause flooding or landslides or destroy the environment. They rely on conservation authorities to appeal decisions if they're wrong and work them out. The government is taking away both those powers. And thirdly, they're preventing municipalities from ever filling that gap themselves. Because the only way for municipal governments to fill that gap would be to contract with conservation authorities to provide them with the expert advice that they need in order to decide that they themselves should refuse development in a place right. where we'll so we have, and that's taken away as well. Yeah, we have. Um, so there's a lot, all these municipalities all over Southern Ontario. How come they can't stop sprawl if that was their desire to, to do so? Could they well, not? Do I so? mean, because you have to remember that sprawl is a regional phenomenon. So each lower tier municipality, is a tiny piece of land. And it's like what you call a collective action problem. So uh, it's something that can only be done if everyone coordinates. Because what you don't want is a situation where people are like, well, if I say no to this development, the next person even further away is going to say yes. So I might as well say yes too. Like that's a circumstance that we often have. We we see it... um, with consumption, you know, with electricity, if an individual makes a choice to reduce their electricity consumption uh, in a market system, that just means that the electricity price goes down and someone else gets cheaper electricity and they use more. Yeah, that's, that's not called, that's uh, like it, it has to be centrally directed. That's called Jevons, everyone has to be on the same page. That's called Jevons paradox in, in technical terms. Um some a friend of mine said, well, how come provincial government doesn't uh, guide immigrants to move to northern Ontario, to the Sudbury's and North Bays of the world? I mean, that sounds a bit draconian, but um, do do people choose Toronto or are there reasons why they go there in the GTA? I know Kitchener and Guelph are also places to grow. Um, why don't people go to northern Ontario? I, I think what people don't understand uh, if you don't come from a you know recent immigrant family is People don't immigrate to countries by large. They immigrate to cities. So, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, so uh, my little branch of the family immigrated to Toronto by and large. My, but my, their cousins, they immigrated to New York and New Jersey and Los Angeles. And so then when things weren't working out for my cousin in New Jersey, they didn't move to Connecticut. They didn't move to you know, Louisiana, they moved to Toronto, right? Because, and so if you're saying, uh, well, you you can only come to Canada if you have to North Bay, then the answer is just going to be too bad, so sad, I'm not going to go. Not not, not to say against North Bay specifically, but people don't know about it. And 
there is a phenomenon, right? Like you have to have a concentration of uh, a physical adjacency of uh, of of all the pieces together yeah. in order to to make uh, those kind of economies work. Or else you might as well be, you know, just stay where you were, you know, <laughs> because uh, what's to, you know, it, we you can do a Zoom meeting from from Zurich as easily as you can do a Zoom meeting from Toronto. If if you people are looking to get that extra advantage that comes from physical adjacency. So um, Bill 23 has already passed second reading. Is it still possible to stop it? Absolutely. Uh, and, and there are different levels of stopping it. we got to remember, uh, you know, this government does not usually respond to reason. Uh, what it does, it does not usually respond to being convinced in good faith that what they were proposing to do was uh, the wrong thing and they should change to the right thing. This government responds to fear of political consequences. It responds to fear that people who were its voters are going to jump ship. And folks in Muskoka, you are the some of the most powerful people in the province right now. You're the ones with the opportunity to kill Bill, uh, to kill Bill 23, or at least to strip off the worst parts. And so I think, you know, a simple ask is to remove Schedule 2 of Bill 23, the, the schedule around conservation authorities, to cancel the Greenbelt takeouts, and to remove the attack on regional planning. If you could ask just for those three big changes from the government, and you make it clear that you are mad as hell about what the government's doing, because none, let's remember, there is not a single MPP. If you voted Tory, you had every right to expect that the green belt would never be touched because the government repeated that again and again. You had every right to expect that wetlands would never be touched because the government kept using the fact that we have conservation authorities and other protection regimes to say that we don't need to worry about sprawl because we can just rely on conservation authorities to take care of it. So you were lied to. Let's make it yeah. very clear. You were lied to if the government goes ahead with this bill and the green belt takeouts based on the campaigns it ran. So I know you mentioned that uh, Perry Salmascoca riding is, is could potentially be a kingmaker here or an instrumental here because uh, Graydon Smith is our MPP and he could be, um, he may lose, there's a good chance he will lose in the next election to the Green Party. So um, I, I'm with you there. What about the, the OMB or the new version of the OMB? Is that going to help at all? Well, I mean, unfortunately, you know, there are some real problems here. So the government has a sort of an MO that it runs again and again. We've seen it over the past four and a half years, let's say. And that is that it grabs onto a very real crisis, a crisis of the day. Yeah. And it, you know, just cynically drops some reference to that crisis and, and, and a very tangential relationship to something that they want to do for a completely different reason. Yeah, that's, and, called, uh, and, that's, and, called, that's called shock doctrine by um, Naomi Klein coined that. Absolutely. And then they, they, they do something completely unrelated, but keep pretending that it has something to do with the problem. So during the pandemic, we saw the government, uh, there was a real problems in long-term care. And people kept hearing about you know, people dying in long-term care. But the problem was that was not that there aren't enough long-term care 
uh, operators or there aren't enough long-term care facilities in the forest, you know, <laughs> or on farmland. The problem was that you had a lot of for-profit long-term care operators who were cutting corners and yeah. behaving in ways that got their residents killed. That was the problem. Yeah. But they just used the fact that long-term care was in the media all the time as the pretext for all of these MZOs for a long-term care facility covered by, uh, surrounded by a big sprawl of development out in the suburbs. So you're, now, su- you're we- probably you're probably suggesting that the developers are they have Doug Ford's ear and they want to move now and fast before Doug Ford gets unelected for potentially in the next uh, election. So yeah. A, so now we have a right very now. real housing crisis, right? We really do need those homes. But the Ford government keeps attaching this number of 1.5 million homes to stuff that's actually going to make it harder to deliver 1.5 million homes in the places they're needed, which is in existing neighborhoods and in the compact forms that they need to be delivered. We have to remember the reason that housing is expensive is not that there is a shortage of land to build housing. There are, even if you want to build greenfield development, there are roughly 350 square kilometers of land already within urban settlement area boundaries within the Greenbelt, not even touching the contested countryside and definitely not touching the Greenbelt itself. Um, those areas of land are ready to go. Yeah. People can build on them, but they're not being built because that's not where people want to live. The real crunch is in those existing neighborhoods. And yeah. every time you divert resources to try, the government's trying to force pieces of Greenbelt to be developed first, right, within the next three years, that means less housing is going to be built in those existing neighborhoods. Because the bulk of the cost issue that we have, or a big piece of it, is that all of the parts of construction are very expensive now. So we have a supply chain crunch for building materials. We have a very restricted skilled labor supply. There's often even not enough construction equipment to go around. So that means that every thousand square feet of extra floor space that gets built on a house in the green belt is an entire compact family home that's not getting built in the city of toronto within existing neighborhoods in mississauga and brampton where that's where we know the demand is okay well i'm afraid we're out of time but i must say i'm really glad you're in our corner on this one we need to replicate you like a suburban sprawl we need to have phil poppins everywhere um thank you very much for appearing on my show and um and let's keep up the fight to stop bill 23 thank you so much thanks frank good to talk to you I went to the country to escape the noise and lights And I laid there in the pine cones all night I woke in the morning and all the trees were gone I got this sinking feeling, everything felt wrong There were strip malls and 